are listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.riversideconnect.org. If you are a guest today, you came on one of my most favorite days in the calendar year for Riverside Community Church because this is a day where we are encouraged to partner with the organization that you've been hearing, Convoy of Hope. Ten years ago, we were the second church to ever do one of these offerings and to be able to give that to Convoy. And now churches around the country are doing that. And Convoy has just exploded exponentially. And now they feed 125,000 children around the world. In addition to the disaster relief, like what they're doing in the Philippines now, like what they're doing in the Midwest after the tornadoes, like what they do uh, um, anytime there's a disaster around the world, as well as reaching out in community um, outreach events and such. So um, we encourage everybody again to take one day's salary out of all the days of your year and say, this day, whatever I gain, whatever I earn, I'm going to give it away to people that could never have an opportunity to have the kind of income, the kind of job that I have. And in we, when we do that, we, uh, we really are, are fulfilling, I think, the greatest, uh, the law of Christ in loving one another. <clears throat> Today, we're going to continue our series called um, Unfinished, Believing in Jesus is Only the Beginning of What It Means to Be a Follower of Jesus. And uh, I want to I read, I want to take a passage of scripture that's very familiar. If you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, you're familiar with this. It's one of the two, I think... Um, North Star scriptures of, uh, in the Bible, those, those scriptures that if you can let this be your North Star guiding you, then you're going to be pretty well on your way to being what Christ wants you to be. The first of them, the one is, is um, <clears throat> the greatest commandment, and the greatest commandment we know is to love God and to love one another. It's a twofold commandment, the great commandment. I, I think that I like to say we love God by loving one another. The Bible says elsewhere that how can you say you love God and hate your brother? You, the two just don't fit. So how do we love God? We love God by loving one another, and especially when we can love others that aren't like us, or maybe the ones that have hurt us. Loving your enemies, that ethic of Jesus. So that's the greatest commandment. And then the, this passage we want to read today, and we're going to go a little deeper into that is what we call the Great Commission. This is the mandate of God to all believers, all who are saying, I want to follow Jesus. The Great Commission, it's Matthew chapter 28, and I want to begin with verse 16, and it's the last words of Matthew's gospel. Would you please stand with me? Let's read it out loud together. Let's all read together. It's up on the board in front of you, so we can all have the same uh, version. Let's, let's do that. Let's, let's just say it out loud. When the 11, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thank you. You may be seated. So this, this idea we're talking about is, is this invisible 
unconquerable and unfinished kingdom of God that Jesus came to establish. I want to talk for just a minute about kingdoms, about royalty. If you've been watching the news, if you've been alive this week in the United States, you are aware of the fact that this is the 50th anniversary of the assassination of JFK. And uh, the question throughout the years has always been, where were you when you got the news? Similar to where were you when you got the news of 9-11? We all have that memory seared in our minds. Those of us who are old enough remember. And I was only in first grade at that time. I was six years old, and I can remember vividly the seat where I was sitting in. And I remember our teacher and the principal coming into the classroom, interrupting her and talking to her. And she begins to cry. And then the principal tells all of us that our president had been shot and was killed. And we all start crying. And the buses come early to take us home. And we all crying on the way home. We get home. Our mom's crying as she's ironing because that's what moms did back then. And... and uh, <laughs> Uh, it was a long time ago, and uh, and 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 I mean that those memories in those four days, you know, when Oswald was killed by Ruby, and and all the questions that have never been answered since then. It, it was it was an amazing time. But I want to talk about JFK because I want you to realize he was he was uh, he became president only months after Alaska and Hawaii became our. 49th and 50th states. The Cold War at that time had been really heating up and, and had, had, had reached its peak, perhaps, during his presidency. The United States and Soviet Union, after, you know, had been, had been building this, the, the largest military machines the world has ever seen, and, and they were on a race to see who can make the most atomic bombs and point them at one another in establishments in Europe and here. And if you remember, that was when Khrushchev partnered with Fidel Castro in Cuba to put missiles, and they pointed them directly at us, and Pittsburgh was one of those cities that would have been the first hit because of the industrial machine that we had here that was helping to build the, the, the military. And um, Khrushchev, who was the premier of Russia, the Soviet Union at that time, had threatened that his style of communism was going to bury Western capitalism, and... And all of us, all of us who are old enough remember the air raid drills in school. Do you remember the air raid drills? The, the, the sirens would go off. We'd have to go leave our classrooms, go out in the hallways and kneel on the side with our heads up against the wall, covering our heads, just waiting for the bombs to drop. And, and you know, my kids never grew up with that. They don't understand the Cold War. They don't, they, why would we be so crazy that we would think? But it was real. We expected it. It could have happened at any time. And, and we had a president that was going to help us through these days. When JFK was elected, I mean, he was the hope of all hopes for Americans. This young, this movie star, handsome personality 
World War II hero, the pilot of PT-109, who when it was cut in half by a, by a Japanese ship, swam for miles, pulling his, his friends on his back to get to an abandoned island where they were for eight or so days in enemy territory. Wait, I mean, it made a movie. It was fantastic. Married to this beautiful, stylish Jacqueline Beauvier, this other, you know, debutante, rich kid. Everybody wanted to be the Kennedys. We all wanted to have children as perfect as the Kennedys. We all wanted to have a family that had as much fun as the Kennedys. We thought the Kennedys, if they could make the rest of us like them, we would be on top of the world. We were loving it all. And it was as if when he was elected, America crowned their royalty. In fact, his presidency was called what? Camelot. This new king gave hope to the downtrodden. If you read his inaugural address, every president since then has tried to match Kennedy's inaugural address, and nobody has come close. He unleashed an army of idealistic young people to go out into the poorest places of the world and, and be a part of the Peace Corps. Not the military, but the Peace Corps to be able to help fix some of the world's greatest problems. And the Peace Corps is still around today. He was about to right all the wrongs to defeat the spread of ungodly, atheistic communism. He was to lead the cause of civil rights for the African Americans. He launched a space program. He said in 10 years, we're going to put a man on the moon. And at that point, we hadn't even put a man in outer space. And, and we believed it. And we did it. I mean, the guy had set a course for America that we are going on, that every, his popularity ratings had, were the highest ever of any president and still the highest popularity ratings of any president. In that famous inaugural address, the line that we all hear over and over was when he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And everybody was saying, I want to help this country be what it's supposed to be. I want this country to live up its, to, uh, to its ideals. We were all so proud, all so hopeful, all so willing to get on board to make this place better and help America be the salvation for the rest of the world because we had the willpower, the technology, the might, the brains and everything going our way. And then he was killed. And then he was killed. And, and people will say that that moment on December 22nd, 1963 was when America lost its innocence. And it was as if King Arthur had fallen Camelot was destroyed. In fact, when she was interviewed afterwards, uh, Jacqueline Beauvier, Jacqueline Kennedy said that there will be great presidents again. There will never be another Camelot again. It will never be this way again. The song from the, the musical Camelot, don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. And the Kennedy presidency was America's Camelot. And it has never been the same again. I mean, we know the history of the 60s. We know the Vietnam. We know the, the race riots. We know the, the civil rights movement. We know all the revolutions that took place after that. And it was, and Watergate, when president, when, you know, during the Nixon years, and, and, and our innocence has been lost. 
1970, the, uh, the Gaithers penned the words, Jesus, Jesus, remember the chorus? Jesus, there's just something about that name, right? Master, Savior. And then it goes on, the last words are, kings and kingdoms will all pass away, but there's something about that name. That's Jesus. Kingdoms, royalty. Royalties come and go. Kingdoms come and go. But there's another kind of kingdom that Jesus talked about that was going to be different than all other kinds of kingdoms. 125 times in the New Testament, it talks about the kingdom of God. It was the central message of Jesus' preaching. It was all about repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In fact, Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. You see, we are here because Jesus has a mission for us to fulfill And we're not just here to enjoy all the good things of the magic kingdom that we were fortunate enough to live in, the first world problems that we have. We're here because God put us here, and he has a sovereign purpose for all of us to be here. You, me, and we together are commissioned by God. In fact, Jesus prayed before, before he suffered and died. He said, God, I don't want you to take them out of the world, but I want you to send them into the world. I want them to go into the world. And, and the Bible says that after Jesus suffered, at the beginning of the book of Acts, he says that he presented himself to his followers and he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about what? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. He spoke about it ceaselessly. He painted all kinds of pictures to illustrate it. He declared that that the main mission of his incarnation was, and his death on the cross was to open the way for men and women to be invited to have access to the kingdom of God. And before he left, he commissioned all of his followers to take the gospel, the kingdom message, and, and take it to the four quarters of the earth. That's what this passage is all about that we're looking at this morning. And so I want to take a deeper look at that. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16, where... Where, Jesus, where it says that the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Why were there 11? Because Judas was gone at this point. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, several observations I want to make here. And the first one is this. Even Jesus couldn't convince everybody. Even the resurrected Jesus appeared to people, couldn't convince. Even the 11 followers weren't, at this point, all convinced. And, 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 and I, I wonder, why were they doubting? What was it that they were doubting? Were they doubting, is this really Jesus? I could imagine, obviously. I mean, I haven't seen anybody risen from the dead that I saw dying across and buried. How could this be him? They're doubting if this was really him, but can, can I believe my eyes? Is this really what's happening? But, but maybe, maybe, maybe they were doubting that what Jesus believed and taught was going to happen. Their king had died. Their king was crucified. Their king had been assassinated, had been murdered, so to speak, by the 
you know, the Romans and the Jewish authorities. And so what were they, you know, they might have been thinking, you know, we've had other kings come and promise that they were going to save us and they were going to make our lives better. We had other messiahs, you know, who came up and claimed to be the messiah and they're all gone. Maybe they just doubted that change could ever happen. Maybe they just doubted that they could ever make a difference. They doubted that the world was ever going to get any better. And, and that's perhaps what they were struggling with. Because here's the thing, when our beloved king dies, hope dies with him. When our beloved king dies, when Camelot dies, hope dies with it. And when you lose hope, you lose faith. And without faith, the Bible says it's impossible to please God. Why is that? Because without faith and without hope, you are defeated before you ever start. If you don't have faith, if you don't have hope, you are already surrendered to the enemy. And, and the problem with that is you can't step out in faith. If I don't believe what I can do to help make the world better is going to make it any better, then I'm not going to give it. I'm not going to sacrifice for others. I'm not going to lay my life down so that I could build up the kingdom of God because I've already lost hope and faith before I ever began. In other words, we think that if things will never get better, then you know what? I just need to worry about myself. I'm going to double down on my wants, on my desires, on my security, on my comforts, on my pleasures, because those problems are always going to be with us, and I can't fix them, so I'm just going to worry about myself. And you know what? That is the way of the world in which we live, is it not? Is that not the way of the world? Jesus then says he came to them, and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And, and here's, here's the point of this. If you are a believer, then you are a deputy. Jesus has deputized you. Notice, notice the language there. By the authority of heaven and earth, Jesus, appearing these last words in the Gospel of Matthew to them, says... I am empowering you. I am unleashing you into the world. Now think of those kinds of words. Authority in heaven and earth given to you. In other words, I'm empowering you. I'm unleashing you. How does that make you feel when you sense you have power and you have been released or unleashed for a task? Well, I'll tell you what. What it does to you is it keeps you from thinking of yourself as a victim any longer. Because see, a victim says, I can't, I'm unable, I don't have the power, I can't, I'm not worthy, I don't think that I can, I have my problems, I have my hurts, I have my issues. And people who feel victims, like they're victimized, cannot find that they have within themselves to help make other people's lives better because they're all worried about their own lives getting better. And so what does Jesus do? He comes alongside and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Now I deputize you. You are my representative to go into the world to do what? To build this kingdom that I have taught about. 
to help establish this world that I have explained to you, to do what you can't expect government to do or church to do or religion to do or anybody else to do. You, no matter how poor you are, in fact, these were some of the poorest of the poor people who did go in and change the world. It happened because they said, God is with me. God has my back. God is sending me out into the world. And he says, therefore, as you go, not therefore just go. To be a disciple doesn't mean I have to sell my house or quit my job and go live in Africa. It, it, the word there literally means that as you go, wherever you go, when you get up in the morning, you go to work. As you are taking that bus into work, as you go to school, as you go, to, to work, as you go shopping, as you go playing, as you go wherever you go, you are my disciple and you are my representative. Wherever you go, as you spread from Jerusalem throughout the world, be a disciple. Be my follower. You can do it. Spread that good news. Unleash me. Jesus says, I am going to be with you throughout this whole time. Now, not everyone's going to believe that this can happen. Not everyone is going to be convinced that this can make a difference. And, and, and because of that, we, we may not feel like we can or we, we refuse to do anything. But I want you to know you've been commissioned. You've been deputized, authoritized by God. And notice what it says here. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded, and know that I am with you always to the very ends of the age. Here, here's the point. Jesus wants disciples, not simply deciders. He didn't say go into all the world and make deciders of people. You see, disciples are people that are immersed. They're baptized into this new reality. Disciples are taught to obey everything Jesus had commanded, not just believe. That's why I've encouraged you to get this book from which the uh, title of the series and a lot of the thoughts that I'm, that I'm sharing with you are, are, are verbalized in uh, Richard Stern's book, Unfinished. We have some extra copies at the book nook here and up at the mills if you want one or if you want to download it on your own. I, I just I encourage everybody to do that. But, but the idea is that believing in Jesus isn't the end of discipleship. It's the, merely the beginning of being a disciple. Jesus' Jesus' call to repent isn't just an appeal for you to feel sorry for your sins and to regret what you did. His call to repent was to change our mind and to change the way we act and to put on a new set of lenses so that we not only see ourselves differently, we see other people differently. It's to reorder our lives because now we're under a new realm. We're not under the kingdoms of darkness any longer. We're not under the authority of the principalities of this world any longer. In the world's way of self-centered thinking, we are under a new realm, a new leader, a new king. And we live and see things the way that he wants us. And for the first time, because Jesus came, men and women have direct access to God. And we live under God's rule with the Holy Spirit as our guide. And he teaches us. And the good news of the gospel is that this door, these doors of the kingdom have been flung open wide for anybody to come in. It's for all who would believe. 
Colossians says he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And Stearns writes in his book, he said, we have misunderstood the gospel to be merely the good news that our sins can be forgiven and we can enter eternal life by believing in Jesus Christ, period. And now while that's important, it's an important element of the gospel, it's not the whole gospel. You know, the kind of gospel that many of us have been nurtured on is that, you know, I deal, I, ha, I do this deal with God, I say this prayer, I say that I believe, and I buy this fire insurance policy that I put in my drawer, and I forget about, and I go back to my regular way of living. The salvation is simply getting my sins forgiven, getting my ticket punched, getting my, buying my insurance policy so that I don't have to worry about going to hell after I die. It's basically about making a decision for Jesus. It's what Dallas Willard calls the gospel of sin management. In other words, the gospel is just about managing my sin problem. It's about, it's about, you know, I have a problem and I have to fix this. And the gospel is this quick and easy solution. You just take the antidote and you get back to your regular life. It was Scott McKnight who talks about the difference between being a disciple and a decider. And most evangelism today focuses on helping people to make a decision for Jesus. But the apostles were all about making disciples for Jesus. Because Jesus called us to be disciples and not just be deciders. Deciders, you know, they believe the right things. Disciples seek to do the right things. Deciders have their own plans and they invite Jesus to come on and help them get on with their plan. Disciples say, I want to be about Jesus's plan and I'm going to get on board with Jesus's plan. Disciples seek to embrace, embrace his mission and serve his, his, his ideals, not Jesus help me to achieve my ideals. Disciples try to plan their whole lives around Jesus, his teachings, and his commands. I mean, the Bible says, and Jesus says some pretty harsh things about deciders. He said, why do you just call me Lord, Lord, and don't do whatever I say? Not everybody who says Lord, Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. It's not just about making a decision for Jesus. Deciders are like the people in Jesus' parable who it says, they hear the word of God, but the worries of life, the difficulties of wealth, the desires or other things are going to come and they're going to choke the word, making it unfruitful. Now, deciders have repeated the sinner's prayer, but just doing that is no different than standing on your wedding day and saying, I do but never following up with what it takes to make for a successful marriage. How many of you know marriage is more than what happens on your wedding day? It takes a lifelong commitment of doing what you can to add value to that person and to your children and to help you make the difference to make that marriage different. And as long as you're putting more in than you take out, it is a successful thing. It's not about what she can do for me. It's about what we can do for each other. The gospel, the good news of the kingdom, is so much more than just making a decision. And I wonder, are you a decider or are you a disciple? 
What changes has Jesus made in your life other than just the fact that you made a mental ascent that Jesus is who he claimed to be? Has it changed how you behave and how you treat and what you do for the sake of God? Are you, are you, are you, you know, have you even been baptized since you've been a believer? The very first thing Jesus said, go and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The baptism is saying, I am immersing my life in Jesus, and I am, my old life is being buried, it is being washed away, and now I'm a new person with a new heart, a new mind, a new direction, and I'm setting on a new course. That's what baptism says. I don't want to get my hair wet. (laughs) I might be embarrassed standing up in front of somebody and doing that. Yeah. Sorry, I can get real cynical right now. (laughs) He, He went to the cross for you. He was shamed and embarrassed and stripped and speared and nailed. Oh, I'm embarrassed. I don't want to make a stand. Forgive me, I can get nasty when I get that way. Uh, And to be honest with you, my point isn't to make you feel guilty. My point is to say it's more than just making a decision. It's more than that. We we encourage people if you made a decision for Christ, that's the beginning. But 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 let's let's find out what does the gospel say. So we encourage you to do a first steps in following Jesus. You know, find a spiritual coach or become a spiritual coach and make disciples if you want to be a part of our follow process and. You know, what does the Bible say about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? How do I make those first steps? It's, it's not a program you follow. It's just good questions to ask yourself to help you get on the right track. And if you want to, uh, to do that, grab one of these free booklets up front, and, and we'll help you get tied up and make those steps. But here's the problem with a gospel that's only about getting my sins forgiven so that I can avoid hell. It wasn't the gospel that Jesus preached. It lacks the power to change the world. What happened to his vision of a kingdom that was going to come on earth? Now is it his name? He didn't say to pray, our Father who art in heaven, just forgive me of my sins. He said, pray, Lord, may your kingdom come here now on earth. May your will be done here now on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, it's about that happening now until we go to heaven. The kingdom of God begins now. Eternal life begins when we make a decision, but it's just the beginning. And what about the assertion that the church is going to storm the very gates of hell? What about the fact that we are to raise up a revolution against the principalities and powers of darkness in this world? Where is all of that in the kingdom of sin management, the, the gospel of just get your sins forgiven so you can go to heaven? It's more, it's so much more. The good news of the kingdom was a story that the king had come. The kingdom was now available and open to all. We can't just cherry pick the passages that we like and ignore the parts we don't like. Forgiveness and salvation are crucial parts of the story, but they aren't the whole story. And we can't just limit Jesus to being our savior without saying, Jesus, be my leader. Be my king. I believe in the kingdom that you talked about. Though you were crucified, though they killed you, you didn't stay in the grave. You rose out of the grave and you deputized me 
to help be a part of this kingdom that is still spreading throughout the world. We can't just limit Jesus to being my forgiver. He's my king. He's my Lord. In fact, Jesus taught, and I want to end with this passage. He taught that the day that God separates the the sheep from the goats, the the deciders from the disciples, it's going to he paint this is a picture of the kingdom that he painted in Matthew 25. He said he said that, that the king is going to say to those on his right, "Come, those of you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I was naked. You gave me clothing. I was sick. You cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then these righteous ones, the disciples, the right living ones are going to reply, Lord, when did we ever do that for you? When did we do these things for you? And Jesus will say, the king will say, I tell you the truth. For whenever you did it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And these poor, powerless peasants on the backside of the Roman Empire believed it, and they behaved it, and they changed the world. That same spirit that Jesus said into their lives is here, has been given to you, and is blowing behind you to help you take it to the next place, to the next place. And so as you go, wherever you go, God's going with you to be a disciple, to make disciples. This is why this is one of my favorite days, because I think this is what Riverside does best, to show that we are disciples of Jesus, not just deciders for Jesus. Because in one small way, we say, we're going to sacrifice just a day, just one day salary. And I know what you're saying, but man, I could use that for Christmas. Black Friday's Thursday, man, I could get a lot more stuff if I didn't use this. It is Thursday. What are they going to change the name now? Black Thursday from Thanksgiving to Black Thursday. What a wonderful change that is. I'm going to preach on that someday. Um, I know we could use it. Maybe you have maybe you have credit card bills that could be paid with it. I understand. I understand. You say, well, man, I'm giving so much to the capital campaign. I can't give any more. I, I thank you for that. I hope you are. <laughs> but this is a sacrifice. That's why they call it a sacrificial offering. It's not taken from what I normally give in my tithes. It's not taking what I normally give. In, it's saying, I'm going to give above and beyond. And I just, you know, I want you to do it not because of any guilt or shame. I want you to do it because... I'm a disciple, and I get to do this. I get to do this. I get to be a disciple of Jesus. I get to help the helpless, the hurting, the distressed, 
I get to do that. Convoy of Hope is our, our conduit of compassion. We don't give to them, we give through them. And that's why I, part, I love to partner with them. So I'm going to encourage you, and I, and I don't do it, I do it unapologetically. I know, well, they talk about their church's money. No, I'm talking about building the kingdom of God. No, I'm talking about establishing the kingdom. So if you can do that, if you want to do that, if you're able to do that, and, and if you want to make a sacrifice, what I'm going to do, we take one offering today, everything that's not designated for missions or one day to feed the world, everything that's regular is your regular giving. Please do not take anything from your regular. But if you want to give sacrificially above and beyond, then I invite you to designate that. Now, you say, well, I didn't bring my checkbook. I'm not prepared for that. Um, if you have a phone with a QR code, you can, you can uh, you know, just... Click on that. It'll take you right to our giving page. You can give um, electronically, and you can designate there a one-time offering. Um, put in your information, and, and uh, that's a secure way to give also. So we're going to do it. This is our response to the gospel, to the message today. It's our response today, and I, and I want us to do that. I'm going to pray and give you an opportunity to give. We'll watch a video, and, and as you watch this video, you're going to see a lot of different film clips and know that uh, every piece of video from this is from Convoy of, Hope, Convoy of Hope's own feeding programs. This is where what you give in one day goes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that we can partner with somebody, with, with, with Convoy. We can do something very tangible to be disciples, to help make the world a better place in the name of Jesus, who not only forgives us of our sins, who not only saves us from ourselves and from the flames of eternal separation from God, but a, but a Jesus who wants us to represent him in our world today. So help us heal the sick, feed the hungry, clothe the naked. Do all of those things, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Riverside Community Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.riversideconnect.org.